All right, guys. Let's bring our discussion groups to a close as we uh, come back together to talk about all this stuff. <clears throat> Lots of good stuff going on in these two chapters. Um, hope you got a chance to talk through most of it. Um, we do have a ton of ground to cover, so I'm going to dive straight in. We've already prayed, um, so we'll jump in here. Uh, Start off with a narrative overview, just as I always do, uh, making sure we're keeping track of, of where Paul and Barnabas and, and uh, where, where they're at, where Luke is in, in the course of his story. So again, uh, as, as we finished up last week, we are still in the midst of uh, Paul's first missionary journey. So he began that in chapter 13. He and Barnabas went out from Antioch. They went to the first few cities. Um, they went through Cyprus. They went to Antioch and Pisidia. Uh, and chapter 13 ended, if you'll remember, with them shaking off the dust from their feet there in Antioch. They were being run out of town, um, and they move on to Iconium. So here in chapter 14, you see them uh, finish up their journey. They go to Iconium. They spend some time there. Uh, then they move on to Lystra, and then to Derby, and then they head home. In all those places, they do what they've done before. They're, they're preaching the gospel in Jewish synagogues. That's where they start. Uh, you know, we're told in Iconium, many people believed uh, as they spoke boldly and witnessed to Christ. Um, and yet then, again and again, they faced the same persecution they faced before. So uh, some, some Jews who are disagreeing with the fact that Jesus is the Messiah come in. They begin to, it says they poisoned the minds of, of the brothers, those who were believing. Um, and so they run them out of town from Iconium. There's this plot to stone them. So they're literally running for their lives when they move on to Lystra. Um, in Lystra, there's this amazing miracle, very reminiscent of what uh, Peter and John did, remember, with the, the lame beggar back in Acts chapter 3. Same thing happening now with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they, they look intently at this man there in verse 9. Uh, this is interesting. Did you notice this? Paul, looking intently at him, saw that he had faith to be made well. That's really interesting. We often think... Um, that it's like the faith of the person doing the healing that matters in the equation of a healing. But uh, that verse makes it sound kind of the opposite, that it matters the faith of, of the person being healed, uh, which is really fascinating. But, um, but yeah, he, he is healed in that moment. And then uh, these, are, these are pagan worshipers. They're not Jews. They're in that city. And so they, they see this clearly divine act and they ascribe it to their pagan gods, Zeus and Hermes. Uh, and so they start to, to sacrifice uh, animals to Zeus and Hermes, saying that, that Paul and Barnabas are them. Uh, that's a very interesting moment. They have to talk them out of it, as you saw. Um, but then the Jews from Antioch are, are, and, and from Iconium are, are chasing them down. They're basically being, being chased down by these Jews who are so against this message, and they actually succeed in stoning Paul this time. Um, I don't know where Barnabas was at this point, why he wasn't stoned as well, but Paul uh, is stoned, and he is thought to be dead. Um, I, I find that so interesting. This isn't one of, one of our main teaching points, but I just at least want to highlight it momentarily. Um, like, when you're following God, sometimes His protection of you is not that, you, that He keeps you from going through troubles. Like, sometimes you're stoned, and everyone thinks you're dead, but then He lets you survive. Like, like His, His purposes do not... It, again, we, we do our best here to push against push back against the prosperity gospel that is so pollutant in our, in our churches across America, across the world today. Um, this is evidence that if you're following God purely, you still may be stoned. You still may go through incredible pain, uh, but God brings you through it. God has purposes even in our, in our pain. So that's, that's what happens to him there in uh, Lystra. 
He's stoned. Uh, somehow he survives that thing. Obviously a work of the Holy Spirit there. He gets up. He moves on to the next city. They go to Derby. Um, I'm not sure if you pronounce how, how these uh, cities are actually pronounced, but that's how I save them. Um, they see some more people saved there. Then they kind of work their way back. So this is, this is the map in the back of your books. Uh, again, you're sort of seeing uh, what, what we saw last week. They've, they've moved through, and then at the end of chapter 14, they're moving all the way back to uh, Antioch, where they finish up. And we're not sure how long they're there, but chapter 15, they move from Antioch down to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. We're going to talk about that extensively in just a few minutes, so I'll skip that part for now. But, uh, but that's sort of what, uh, what's covered in these chapters of narrative. Uh, how about theme overview? Did you guys see the big, the big themes playing out? How did you see the, the work of the Holy Spirit in, uh, in these chapters? Audience participation part of our day. Yeah, all the healings. Uh, you see the healing of the, the, uh, of the, the lame man there in Lystra. You see Paul's miraculous uh, survival. And, and I think it's, it's clear to say a healing there as well from the Holy Spirit. Uh, signs and wonders, we're told, are performed there in Iconium um, by Paul and Barnabas as they're preaching. So some, some clear miracles of the Holy Spirit. I also see uh, the Holy Spirit, one of, the, one of the explicit references to Him is in uh, chapter 15, verse 28 as the council is writing this letter back to Antioch about their judgment. And they say, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to give you this, which is interesting. It's basically you know, evidence of the fact that the, the early church viewed, and I'm sure they did this through prayer, but uh, as they were counseling, as they were gathering and talking and debating, they were asking the Holy Spirit to lead them. Uh, they were trusting that the Holy Spirit was leading them. Um, as they made decisions, they, they viewed the Holy Spirit, even though we're not told specifically that the Holy Spirit spoke, we're told that Peter spoke and that James spoke and that Barnabas and Paul spoke during that council. And yet, as they conclude, they say the Holy Spirit has affirmed this. And so sort of the unity of uh, the brothers is viewed as, a, as a, a seal from the Holy Spirit. So interesting little thing there. Uh, how about witnessing for Christ? Um, you see a lot of this, uh, especially in chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas are continuing on this missionary journey, preaching Jesus, preaching the fact that he died, that he resurrected, that forgiveness is available in his name. Development of the church, third theme. Huge stuff this week. I hope you, you paid attention to this. Uh, a, a few things that I want to point out to you. First, um, they establish elders in each of these churches. Did you notice that? As they're going back through, they've, they've gone through the first half of the missionary journey, visited all these cities. Now they're going back through on their way home, visiting the believers that were there. And what are they doing? They're establishing churches. Believers are not supposed to exist on their own. They're supposed to exist in community, and they're supposed to, those communities called the local gatherings, the local churches, are supposed to be led by elders. So he's appointing leaders over these people to care for them, to oversee them, uh, to, to make sure that they grow spiritually. Um, it's Paul that gives us the qualifications for those elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He's establishing here, right here in the book of Acts, what is normative rule for churches, which should be ruled by a group of elders, plurality of leaders established, qualified leaders established by the local churches. So uh, that's important. Also, uh, I think it's really important that they, uh, in chapter 15, you sort of get this establishment of apostolic authority. So they have this question about circumcision. What do they do? Do they debate it just there in Antioch? No, they go to the apostles. They're going down to the original 12 who are still in Jerusalem in order to hear what they have to say. They, they still at this time, uh, very much so, and we still do this today, we trust the authority of the apostles. If you don't believe me, then 
uh, just look to your Bible and, and note the fact that most of our New Testament is written by the apostles. The reason why it's inspired, the reason why we hold fast to these scriptures uh, is because it came from them. They had unique authority. Jesus gave them unique authority as he was departing. And those 12, uh, you know, should rightly have led the church at that time. Now, the Catholic Church would say apostolic authority passed on from the original apostles to apostles after them all the way to today. That's where they still view the Pope as uh, inerrant, that, that if he speaks out of his office, you know, ex cathedra, if he speaks as the Pope, his, his word is infallible because he's an apostle. Uh, I would completely disagree with that. You do not see the apostles handing down that authority um, in, in the scriptures. Uh, and I would even say Paul, uh, or, or Peter, who they would say is the first pope, did you watch how he plays out in the Jerusalem council? He doesn't issue edicts. He's, he's talking. He's persuading. He views himself as one among many. You know, this is, this is the way the early church was led, not by a single personality with a force of ego. It was, it was uh, guys who were trying to seek the Lord together. So, so real important stuff there, guys. Uh, fourth theme, history of salvation, unity with the Old Testament. place I see this the most is uh, there in chapter 15 with the reference from Amos, uh, verses 16 and 17. That is uh, just a connection with uh, the Old Testament to show us that God always intended salvation to go to the Gentiles. That was James, the brother of Jesus, who quoted that one. Um, during the Jerusalem Council. And then the last one, huge theme in this, these chapters, evangelization of the nations. Obviously, you're seeing missionary activity go out among the Gentiles uh, here in chapter 14. And then this big debate plays out. That's all, everything that they're talking about there has to do with um, whether or not you know, Gentiles can be saved and how they should be saved. So um, big stuff there, guys. Hope, hope you keep tracking those things. Um, and with that, let's jump into... Um, the Jerusalem Council, because I think that's the most significant thing here. Um, there were a lot of rich things in, in, in these chapters that I considered pointing out. Maybe I'll write some articles or, or do a little extra podcast, um, because there are a few of them that I think are really fascinating. Um, Paul's miraculous survival there, the healing of the lame man, I thought was really interesting. I also think 14.2, uh, we, we didn't touch on this much, but um, the unbelieving Jews that come into Iconium and... It says they poison the minds of the believers. Y'all, that, that is how satanic division in the church always works. It is gossip. It is poisoning of the minds. It is chitter-chatter that happens behind the scenes where slowly and surely unbelieving people, even though they look like they're believers, start to degrade and erode your trust in your spiritual leaders. And it's not, be, you know, there's moments when trust in leadership should break down. Moments of clear sin, moments of, uh, in fact, the Bible tells us how to deal with sin, even in leadership. Uh, but it's not that. It's like this, this poisoning of the mind. That's totally how I've seen it play out as a pastor myself. I think it's fascinating that it's referenced here. But all of that is not what's most important here in uh, these chapters. Uh, what is most important is very clearly chapter 15. This Jerusalem Council and what is debated there, they're, they're, they're resolving and, and debating an enormous question that I think affects all of us, even, even to this moment. It's a huge moment as they clarify what is the true gospel. I mean, I can't overstate how important this debate was and how important the conclusion is that they reached. They are talking here about the message of the church. You know, we talked about that uh, last week, that the church has one message uh, and it's Christ. It's Christ's uh, forgiveness in His name. We have, we have no other message that we preach. There's sure plenty of things that we teach on, but that is the main central message of our faith. That is, of all the uh, doctrinal positions that are important, that's the highest one. 
you know, of, of, of all the first-tier issues on which we must agree as, as Christians in order to hold uh, unity with one another in true faith. That is the most essential one. What is the gospel? What is it that actually saves us? What doesn't save us? These are the questions they're debating on. So I just want to make sure we're seeing this all clearly. I think it's really critical. So on your note sheet, I have uh, three little blanks, fill in the blanks for you. I want to look at three things. The question they're asking, the answer they find, and then the exhortation they give uh, as they give their answer. So first thing here, the question, the question they're asking, the way I would phrase it is, does grace alone really save us? Okay, so this, this comes up as Paul and Barnabas are returning to Antioch. Remember, Antioch is this, this mixed church. There are Jews there, to be sure, but there's a lot of Gentiles. In fact, it's mostly a Gentile church. And some Jews, were told, in, in uh, chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 15, came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were beginning to teach the people in Antioch that unless, this is the exact quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a huge statement and a huge teaching. And it ignites what, what, uh, what Luke calls no small debate between these men. That's a, that's a nice way of phrasing this is a big old church fight. I mean, they're about to have a church split over this issue. These are clearly some Jews uh, we're told in verse 5 that they belong to the party of the Pharisees. So these are Pharisees who used to oppose Jesus, who have now converted to believing in Jesus. And yet even believing in Jesus, they hold still that all of the Old Testament law is still important. And that a new believer, a Gentile believer who hasn't been circumcised, who hasn't followed the law of Moses in the Old Testament, yes, it's Jesus who gets him saved, who, who forgives him of his sins and gets him cleaned up. But then in order to stay clean, he has to get circumcised and follow the law. You know, true salvation, they're basically saying, is yes, the work of God, but then also the work of man. You know, and, and Paul and Barnabas are vehemently opposing this, fighting with them significantly over this, uh, because they believe, no, it's grace alone that saves us. So the question is huge. It's an enormous uh, problem that is ignited really over what is it that saves us? Is it, is it grace alone? Is Jesus enough? Is his work on the cross enough to reconcile you to God and get you to heaven? Or do you need something else in your life as well? And I would say that question has not been fully resolved to this day. Like when you look around churches in our, in our, um, in our world today, you will see people who say, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to speak in tongues. You know, if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit and haven't experienced speaking in tongues and prophesying, then you're not a true believer. There's churches that will, will teach that. There's other churches that will say, well, yes, you, you need Jesus and, and His grace, but you must be you know, baptized by immersion as an adult. If you're, not, if you're not baptized, if you haven't taken that act of obedience in your life, then, then you're not actually saved. You won't go to heaven. The, the blood of Jesus, his, his faith in His blood is not fully sufficient. You need another act as well. Or if you don't belong to a particular church, you know, if you're not a part of our church and our denomination, then, then the, the true church has been corrupted and the, the true gospel has been lost and you have to be, belong to our church if you're going to be right with God. Or maybe you grew up in a church like mine that was very legalistic and maybe they didn't explicitly say that you needed more than Jesus, but they, they taught Jesus and then the biggest message you got from the sermons was don't drink, don't cuss, don't have sex, live a holy life and then God will accept you. Almost that Jesus gets you kind of clean, but then you need more after that. And what really makes you right with God is your behavior, your works, your life. This is still taught. In fact, it's the formal doctrine of the Catholic Church. 
uh, I, I don't know if you grew up in the Catholic Church. I don't know what your opinions are of her. Uh, I believe that Catholics can be saved. I believe that there are some people in the Catholic Church who are saved. Um, but I believe the Catholic Church's teaching on salvation is heresy. Um, I, I don't use that word lightly. I don't call everything heresy. But, but what they teach is that, yes, Jesus saves you, but you need to go to confession to be right with God. You need to uh, practice uh, you know, you know, what the priest gives you. What is that called? Um, uh, n- no, not th- y- Eucharist as well, but the, uh, the works of... Um, no, not the sacraments. It doesn't matter that much, but what you do to get, you know, your Hail Marys and all that kind of stuff. That is called penance. penance. Thank you. That is the word. Yes. Practice penance to be saved. They have their, their seven sacraments, and basically, if you live according to those sacraments, yes, Jesus saves you, but you have to also live according to these sacraments of the church, and then you're right with God, and you can avoid purgatory and actually get to heaven. Um, it is a vast realm of, of, of teaching in a variety of churches where they are, are doing exactly what the Jews are doing here in, in chapter 15. They're adding to Jesus. Is it Jesus alone that saves you or is it Jesus plus something else? Is it grace alone or is it grace plus works in your life? It's an enormous question. They should have debated this. They did debate it for a while and they came to an answer. Here was the answer they came to. Yes, salvation is by grace alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not of works. Um, this is not the exact words they use, but it is the exact conclusion they reach. I'll show this to you. Uh, you know, Antioch sends Barnabas and Saul down to Jerusalem. They have this long debate. We're told in verse 16, there's, there's much talk about this, some back and forth. Different people are giving their opinions. These are not just the, the apostles, also the elders, and we're told some brothers as well. So a large council is brought together to consider this question, an important question to be sure. Um, they talk about it for a few days, and, and finally Peter speaks. You know, we're not told if maybe Peter contributed at some point in the, the first few days, but Peter, being a wise man, he saves himself for the end and finally gives this, this big speech that picks up in verse 7. Um, you know, this is Peter who basically started the church. He was the one who was leading there in the upper room in chapter 1. He's the one who preached on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. He and, and John are the ones who healed the lame beggar and then preached again. I mean, all the growth of the church is because of Peter. He's, he, his voice matters in that room. He is one among equals. He's one of the, the 12 uh, apostles, but he is viewed without a doubt as, as a, a chief among equals at that time. And this is what he says. I want to read verses uh, 7 through 11. Make sure you see this. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. What's he referring to there? Cornelius, remember the, the moment in Acts chapter 10 where, where God sends Peter in a very miraculous way to the house of Cornelius, a uh, God-fearing Gentile, and, uh, and they're saved, and they're, they receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. There's clear evidences of the Holy Spirit in that moment, all of that showcasing that they really were totally saved. Um, and, and so Peter's reminding them of this. Verse 9, he says... Uh, He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. How were they saved? How were the Gentiles saved? By faith. They were cleaned up by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So how will we be saved? How will Jews be saved? How will Gentiles be saved? 
by the grace of the Lord Jesus. That Jesus has to issue grace. He has to give forgiveness for you to be saved. And it's received by faith that cleanses your hearts. That Jesus did something in real time back on the cross. He, he, he did a real act of atonement, the Bible teaches us, of propitiation that dealt with sin, that actually cleaned us up, that could really solve the problem of our, of our sin before God that causes this separation uh, from Him. And it's only through Him and His grace that it's solved, that we're able to be reconciled with Him. We need His grace. We need faith in Him in order to be saved. His point is crystal clear. Salvation is by grace alone, received by faith. It's not of works. And he goes on. He makes, he makes the point, we've had the law all along. And it's been nothing but a burden for us. We've had circumcision for generations. Moses established it you know, thousands of years ago. And we've had all the law. Did it make us right with God? No, it, it, it separated us from God. All the law did was cause us to sin and made us aware of our sin and showed us our need for a Savior. We still, the Jews having the law, we still needed Jesus. So why would we, once these people have Jesus, the Gentiles, why would we burden them and straddle them with the law after the fact? And then he uses a great argument to sort of drive his point home. He says, God did this. Don't forget, it was the Holy Spirit who used all these miracles with Cornelius who showed us that Gentiles can truly be saved. Um, who would you be to oppose God is basically his point. It's a very clear argument. Then Paul and Barnabas get up. They say exactly the same thing. They testify to the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles. They point out God is doing this. The Holy Spirit is doing this. Who are we to oppose, uh, oppose God? And then the final speaker recorded there is James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, uh, who we know eventually will lead the church there in uh, Jerusalem. He'll become sort of the, the head among equals as Peter uh, heads off and does some missionary journeys of his own. Um, but James there in, in the church, he speaks and he affirms the same thing. He, he points to the Old Testament, that passage from Amos, and he, he showcases God always intended for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Salvation is not through Israel alone. It's through God. You don't have to be a Jew to be a person of God. You have to receive the grace of God. And he, yes, he's poured it out on the Jews, but he can pour it out on the Gentiles as well. You know, it's God who's doing this thing. Um, so he ends with that great line, we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. Uh, the, the word there is, uh, is, is to burden them, to press them down, to annoy them. He, he's, he's saying it clearly, salvation's by grace alone through faith. They don't need to be circumcised. There's no works they need to do to be saved. They are already saved. They've trusted in Jesus. He's, he's the key to salvation. But that's not all they say, right? They do give some instructions. And I want to clarify this. I, I read a bunch on this to try and understand um, exactly why these four things show up and what they're doing here. And, and this is why I want to use the word exhortation is to clarify what they're doing. They notice that in their response to these Gentiles, to this church in Antioch, nothing is said about circumcision. Isn't that odd to you? The, the main question they were asking was, do we need to be circumcised to be saved? And they don't even mention circumcision in their letter back. It's because they're, they're pointing out the fact, no, you don't. Circumcision is not what saves you. You are already saved. Now, we do want to encourage you to do some things, though. There are some important practices of holy living that should be present in your life if you're going to follow Jesus. You know, it's an exhortation. Remember, the grace of God changes us. If you've really experienced the grace of God, your life should look differently. And so they, this list of things are really them teaching Gentiles how to live holy lives as opposed to the lives they've lived before. All of the, the things that they address here are pagan practices of the Gentile world that would have been commonplace and largely accepted 
uh, by them that needed to go away if they were going to live holy lives and, and faithful lives, loving lives in the new church of, of, of Christ. Um, so three things, uh, I, I want to group two of the commandments together and just showcase what they're really saying here. The, the first uh, commandment they have is uh, we should worship God alone. This whole thing about not eating meat sacrificed to idols. You need to abstain from things sacrificed to idols. He's, they're basically teaching them uh, you need to worship God alone. It was very normal at this time in the Roman world. Roman was a very... Uh, it was a very religious society. I just taught a church history class. I read all about this. It's very fascinating to study ancient Rome. They were not a secular society like America is largely today. They were a very religious society. They were just pagans. So they believed in Zeus. They believed in, in uh, Apollos and all these, all these gods. Uh, they worshipped a, a pantheon of gods. And in fact, they were very glad to include Yahweh in their pantheon of gods. They had no problem worshipping a bunch. Their problem was... Uh, exclusivity. You can't claim that your God is the only God. This is why uh, Christians were persecuted so hard in the first century. But uh, here, so, so it would have been very normal for uh, a Gentile who was coming to faith in Jesus to think it's still okay for me to worship all these other gods. It's still okay for me to worship the idols I've worshipped my whole life and just worship Jesus as well. He's the one that really reconciles me to God. And they're reminding them, no, it's God alone it's sort of pointing back to the, the truth that it is grace alone, in Christ alone. You can't worship other gods too. You must just worship God. They're pointing them to faithfulness in their worship. Uh, second thing I think they're saying here is, is, is they're showing them if you're truly changed by grace, you should love your brothers. Um, that's that's the, uh, the two commandments about eating. So uh, you shouldn't eat blood and you shouldn't eat animals that have been strangled. Um, so these, again, were pagan practices that were practiced at that time. But the problem with these two in particular is that they would have been highly, highly offens offensive to Jewish Christians. So Jews who were uh, raised under, under the Mosaic Law, and, and this all goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, as Noah is exiting the ark, God tells him, you must not eat animals with their blood still in them. That their blood represent the, represented the life. You can eat any animal you want, he tells Noah, but you must drain the blood out first. Um, and so strangling an animal, leaving the blood in it, and then eating the animal without the blood being drained would have been really offensive. And also uh, eating the blood itself would have been, been offensive. Um, and, and so he's, he, they're basically saying, if you really want to follow God, it's going to be really hard for you to coexist with Jews if you eat this way. How are you going to share a table with other believers if you, if you still practice these diets? There's no sin in it. You know, we've been released from these customs, but there's, there's going to be a breakdown in the unity of the church. So out of love, you should, you should give up these things in order to have unity with the, the Jewish brothers. Uh, if you want to see the full argument of this, Paul describes this so clearly in Romans chapter 14. Uh, if you want to see his, his full line of thinking there, it's very, very good at that point. But, but here it's one of the exhortations they give them. And the last one is we should live holy lives, avoid sexual immorality. Uh, the Roman world was a lot like our world today. Your body, your choice. You know, you do whatever you want. There was prostitution was common. It was a part of pagan worship was to, uh, you know, have sex with, with prostitutes at the temple. Um, sexual morality was profuse and widespread in that culture. And they're basically reminding them that's not the way God wants you to live. God wants you to live a holy life, a life of love, a life of, of worship just to him. This is what they, they send to them, which is really nothing more than, than what Anton taught us on Sunday, right? From Luke. Like, your roots bear fruits up here. If you've really been cleansed down in your heart by faith, if God has changed you here, your life should look differently up here. Uh, which I would just you know, remind all of you of. I'm, I'm so excited. I've been praying so hard 
for missional community groups this week because that sermon, I think, is really important for all of us to consider. What fruits are existing in your life, Ben? I mean, what, what patterns and behaviors and, and lifestyle choices are existing in your life that are giving you evidence of what's really wrong in your heart? You know, is there pornography struggles in your life? Are, are, you, are you committing adultery right now? Are you flirting with adultery right now? Are you engaged in, in uh, sinfulness and unfaithfulness? We, we think we can deceive ourselves into thinking these things are small and, and contained in the back corners of our life. Family, no, that's, that's fruit bearing witness to your heart, to the roots of your faithfulness in your soul. And if God's grace has really come into your life, it changes you. It, those things can't exist. It's not in line with the gospel. To all that being said, uh, you know, I'd call you, of course, as we conclude, to inspect your life and inspect your fruit and see the places in your life where, where uh, your life isn't matching up with the grace of God that has saved you. And I'd also say this, if you, you know, grew up in a church where the true gospel was not preached, where you always believed that God was angry with you and he was kind of far off and you heard about Jesus and you heard about the cross, but you didn't quite understand how it all fits together, would you see clearly what is taught here in Romans 15, that there is a true gospel and the true gospel is that Jesus did it all. There's no work required of you because he did all the work. He died on the cross for your sins. He spilled his blood to pay the penalty for every sin you'd ever commit. And only by faith in His name, with His blood as a covering over you, just like the Passover lamb, can you be right with God. Can you be shielded from the wrath of God? He propitiated God's wrath on the cross so that, and again and again, the phrase the Bible uses, so that all who believe might be saved. So believe. It's not works. It's not any work. It is just belief. That's what saves you. Uh, if that's unclear to you, or if you've never believed, and you're, if the Holy Spirit's just sort of opening your eyes, please don't leave here this room this morning without believing. Come and talk to me. I can walk you through that. But that is what saves you, my friend, is seeing the gospel clearly. The Holy Spirit illuminating your eyes and, and, and showing you the path of being right with God, and then believing it, saying yes to Jesus. That's how we're saved. Um, so with that, let me, let me pray for us. We'll be all done. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that your grace is enough for us. There's nothing but the blood that, that can clean us up, Lord. It is you and you alone. And I am uh, sad about a world in which that's, um, that's polluted and confusing to so many people. But I pray here at this church and in this room, Lord, the gospel would be clear in all of our hearts. It is you and you alone that make us right with the Father. It's the sacrifice of Jesus and faith in his name that we get forgiveness of sin. So, Lord, save us, clean us up, help us to believe in you rightly, and make us men that have been changed by your grace and, and bear the fruits of uh, Christian life uh, out here in the surface. We love you, God. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.